don't know me, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the leaders who serve here at Grace. But please, uh, let's uh, join in prayer now as we look at God's word. Father God, we thank you so much for just the encouragement of hearing from your people in the ways in which you've been speaking to us through this book. This book written of many things that happened long ago, but in these things you mean to teach us. In these things you mean to help us understand with greater clarity who you are, what sort of God we have. Father, we ask as we come to the end of this book that you would impress upon us the enormity of what you promise us in Christ, of that great promise that you would come to dwell in us as our God, that you would commit yourself to be with us, to lead us, to provide for us, to protect us. Father, please move our hearts, we pray, that we would see that this building work you're doing in us, your people, is a glorious thing, a joyful thing, a thing that we would give our lives to happily. We ask that you would do this in us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, I had a conversation with um, someone about baptism a while ago, and uh, as we would usually do with baptism, we would like to sit down with someone, and we'd like to hear their story. We'd like to ask questions about their understanding of the Christian message. And that's because we think that baptism is, is a sort of visual enacted picture of what has happened in someone's life. That what they believe about Jesus has meant that they have died and have been risen. And I asked this person about what they understood of the gospel and they, they gave me a wonderful reply. They described Jesus coming to pay for their sin. They described the fact that they had been forgiven and rescued, that they now belonged to Jesus, who was raised from the dead. All of it was really great. I was very encouraged. But, but all of it was sort of explaining, if you like, the, the details of what the Christian message was. And I realise it's a bit awkward if you sit down with someone and ask them to explain uh, the uh, gospel. They might, you know, it's hard for it not to feel like a test. Okay, uh, So I just simply said, look, that's really great. But what does it mean to you? And at this point, they couldn't say anything. Their ears, their ears, their eyes started to tear up. Tears started to stream down their face. They couldn't say anything. They didn't need to. Uh, for them, what they were describing was wonderfully personal. It's not just that they believe that there's this God who comes and rescues this theoretical people and forgives their sin. No, they, they had tasted what it was like to fail. They knew what it was like to be wicked in God's eyes. And yet they were moved by his love. They knew that what they were declaring was that their sin had been forgiven. Their sin had been washed away that they had experienced God's love. Now, we express emotion differently, okay? So <laughs> most conversations about baptism don't necessarily end in tears. The, the point is not that. The, the point, though, is that there is a difference between knowing something about God abstractly and knowing him personally, experiencing his action in our lives, and I think often he uses the points where we really mess up, where we blow it to the point that we can't defend ourselves anymore. Yet we like, most of us, like to think that we're not too bad. 
And yet, when we sin in a way that we, we can't dress over anymore, where we really do feel that guilt before God, that is often a moment that he uses to help the penny drop. God really is a God who can forgive my sin. That the safest place to go, even in my sin, is not away from a holy God, but towards him. As we've already made reference to, uh, last week we saw, I think, the moment that God's people experienced this. Uh, They've seen such revelation of God and his power and his might, but last week they messed up big time. They wanted to bring God down the mountain. They wanted, if you like, to not wait any longer. They wanted a God who would protect them, wanted a God who'd go before them. And they refused to listen to God's commands. Don't make an image. No, the the other nations make images. They make a calf, a, a way of, if you like, sort of containing God, a way of manipulating him. They can pick this God up and take it with them. They can see it before their face. And yet they've experienced the devastation that disobedience comes. 3,000 people killed. The plagues that God issued on Egypt because of their disobeying God now fall on his people. No, they've realized that they've messed up big time. And yet just think about how it would have felt to be an Israelite who, after Moses' intervention on their behalf... God God reveals himself to Moses. He describes his name to Moses. Imagine an Israelite listening to this description that we've already referred to this morning, where God says of himself, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and, get this, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin they know that they've experienced that now he's a god who forgives it goes on he he does not leave the guilty unpunished Uh, he is a god of justice actually the second commandment where god kind of uses some of that same language and he talks about himself being a jealous god he actually he, he kind of inverts that he he talks about punishing the guilty and then he talks about his his love uh, and forgiveness, sort of second. He, he swapped it round because he knows that these people need to hear that he's a God who forgives them. He's a God who loves them enough to deal with their wickedness. That actually, rather than running away from this God, even in their sin, that they would come towards him. Now, I think this is a turning point for the people. I think this is a moment where this penny is dropping, that they are finally getting what it means to have a holy God like they do. A holy God who doesn't want to tremble them to tremble as those who are afraid, but those to, as it were, tremble as they are overwhelmed by his goodness and his love. And so, the start of our chapter, what does God remind the people of? He reminds them of the Sabbath. Look at verse 1. The Lord commands the people to keep the Sabbath day. Whoever does any work on it should be put to death. Honour the Sabbath day. Now, it's interesting that the golden calf episode is framed by two references to the Sabbath back in chapter 31 and now in 35. Either side of Israel's rebellion is the Sabbath, a reminder of the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? It was a pattern once a week, the people to rest, not to do any work. But this was to be a sign. It was to be the covenant sign. This was, if you like, 
the picture of what it meant for the people to be married to God. And in chapter 31, what does the, what does the covenant sign point to? They're to celebrate the Sabbath so that the people may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. He's the one who makes them holy. They're to be a people who live in rest and dependence on his saving, his transforming work in them as they, the treasured possession of their God, is increasingly turned into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, wonderfully, what we see this morning is God giving the people everything they wanted with the calf. Uh, this is him showing them how he will come down the mountain, not according to their designs, but according to his. This is how they can be sure that he really is building his home in their midst, that he really is a God who is going to go before them. Uh, and it involves a building project. Now, as we've said, as we've gone through this kind of part of the tabernacle, we, we don't have a tent, we don't have a special building, uh, we're not to sort of build physical buildings uh, for God to specially dwell in them. No, the building in the New Testament is now a people. We are the building. The building project is in our lives as individuals and together. Uh, and I think what we're shown in these chapters is what does it look like to engage in that building process as those who truly know God? those for whom the penny is dropped. Uh, so several things for us to see. Uh, firstly is this, knowing God moves our hearts to serve. Uh, look at verse four, where Moses passes on a command to the community. Uh, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. And the list goes on. Now, let's remember, the people are in the wilderness. They're in the deserts. You can't go down to Screwfix to collect some supplies. Uh, the materials are what you have amongst you. Uh, and so God needs to, as we're, ask the people to provide it. But notice, he, he asked them to give an offering. This is something they're to do willingly. Uh, you also don't have any factories that you can send off to to get your custom-made curtains. No, to make this... Uh, this tabernacle is going to require skilled people. So verse 10, all who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. And we're reminded of the many different and varied parts of this tabernacle. And this is going to be a huge endeavor to build this tabernacle. It's going to require the whole community. Uh, from the clasps and the tent pegs to the curtains and the Ark of the Covenants. Uh, there are no sewing machines to use. There are no industrial strength furnaces. The people are going to have to do the work. The people are going to have to provide the resources. Uh, and, and notice that skill is going to be required here. Um, God doesn't want a sort of minimum viable product, if you like, for this tabernacle. Uh, we've seen that the aesthetics of this matter, there's to be a, a glory and splendor present in this tabernacle that they're constructing that will point to their God. Well, if, if that's God's invitation, how do the people respond? Look with me at verse 20. Uh, then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting. Do you see that? God invites the people to give, 
and their hearts are moved to give. What they know of this God now, that penny dropping has now changed their disposition to God. They want to give. Verse 29, all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Everyone was involved. Now, I wonder if you notice here, there is a bit of a spotlight for us that this involved both the men and the women. And in fact, we we pointed at verse 25 specifically to some of the ways that women were going to serve here. Verse 25, every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat's hair. Uh, Clearly, the women in this community had the skill of spinning this fabric. My mind boggles, really, as to how they would have taken the resources they had there and turned it into fabric. But these women are skilled. They know how to do it. And, And the point here is that they are involved. They are just as involved as the men. I think it's interesting when you contrast what's going on here with what happens with the golden calf. Okay. When the golden calf needed to be built, uh, going back to chapter 32, Aaron answers the people who talked to him. He said, take off your gold earrings uh, that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And we don't know exactly who was in that group of people who were talking to Moses, but that, that sounds like they're probably the leaders of the households. They're probably the men. Um, and this came up in our home group. You know, How would you feel if your husband came in and said, give me your earrings. We need to pass them on to make a golden cow. But do you see how there's a kind of an indirectness? You know, some people are making decisions on behalf of others. Here, no, every member of the community is, is moved to give. And everyone has skills to use. You see, I think there's something very important that runs throughout the scriptures. That God's house is built as men and women work side by side. And the reason it needs to be underlined for us in the scriptures is that we so often fall short in our understanding of how those men and women work together, not only in our culture, but also in the church. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie Barbie. Uh, that has won, I think, some awards. I know there's a lot of contentiousness about uh, what it didn't win. Uh, but uh, I was surprised. I wouldn't have said that would be the sort of film I'd go and watch. But having gone and watched it, I was fascinated. It asked some very profound questions, uh, particularly of how men and women are to relate. And it sort of plays with these sort of two worlds of a, a world dominated by women and a world dominated by men. Kind of how should men and women work together? What should the relationship be? It raises some really important, profound questions, and yet is just completely hopeless at really answering them in a satisfying way. Uh, I think the end of the film probably feels quite depressing, really. Uh, you might have seen those sort of kind of playful T-shirts with sort of Kenuff written on it. And if you've seen the film, the point is that you know, Ken comes to a point where he realises that he just needs to be enough. You know, he wants Barbie too much. He just, he needs to be enough. Men, men just need to be self-sufficient. Women can be self-sufficient. Be enough. Well, no. That's not what the Bible says about men and women. Now, the Barbie film, admittedly, has little kind of dimensions for relationship beyond a kind of romantic relationship. They have no category for friendship or kind of working together as brothers and sisters. But the Bible does. The Bible says that we were created, male and female, in the image of God to serve as priests together. 
God is making the point that his house will only be built as men and women work together as he intended. Now, sadly, the church, like the culture, can get that wrong. We can start to value the gifts and abilities of certain genders. We can start to sort of act as sort of two separate groups that should almost coexist. No, that is not God's design. They are working together. Uh, but notice that there's also a difference in uh, the roles and kind of authority that this community have. There are leaders who are involved in, in bringing the precious stones on behalf of the people. And in fact, those who are doing this work are those who are skilled. Not every woman is going to be spinning yarn. Some of them would have had different skills. Um, we're introduced to Beziel and Ahiliab. Uh, look at me at verse 31, where we're told that they are filled with the spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for working gold, silver and bronze to cut and set stones and so on. I mean, these guys are very creative people. How exciting would it be to have that sort of creative talent so broad? But, but notice that it's not just that these guys are going to be rolled by God to go and make this tabernacle. No, what do they have the special gift of, verse 34? They have the ability to teach others. They're going to play a role of sort of being the creative team leaders. They're going to train these other craftsmen that get to work on the building of the tabernacle. You see, there are different roles. There are leaders. There are non-leaders. There are skills of different types. There's men and women. But the, the point isn't on each of the parts that these people play. The point is on what they are building together. They all have to work together to make God's home. Now, just zooming out, I wonder if you remember back to the beginning of Exodus when we looked at what life was like for Israel under Pharaoh. But can you see what a contrast this building project is to the sort of building projects they were doing in Egypt? What was Pharaoh like? Well, he was, he was cracking the whip. Make more, more, more bricks. Less, less resources. The people's kind of backs were being broken with the weight that he was putting on them. They were crying out to God for rescue. That was what serving Pharaoh looked like. But what does serving God look like? <laughs> he invites the people to work and they willingly and eagerly give their time, energy and skills in service of him. Uh, look at what happens, verse 3. I mean, this is, this is a phenomenal picture. But verse 3, we're told that they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continue to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. Verse 4, so all the skilled workers who were doing the work of the sanctuary left what they were doing. Okay, the moment you're building a project and all of your skilled workers have to stop, that's a big problem. Okay, you want to minimize that. Why are they having to stop? Well, they say to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. You can imagine, if you like, they've got their kind of big workshop set up. And the people, the day after day, they're bringing more and more resources. It's, it's towering up high. They have no space to lay out the curtains. They have no space to hammer out the materials. At the workmen are like, stop, we, we don't need any more resources right now. So verse 6, Moses gives the order, said the word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. I mean, what an incredible picture. The people just want to give. I just want to give more and more. Do you see how that flows from knowing what God is like? 
knowing deeply what he is like, it, it transforms our hearts. We want to give of our time and our energy and our resources. In a sense, we have to be restrained in our giving. See, it's such a beautiful picture of a building project that involves God's people that they are eager to give themselves to. I wonder whether you recognize parallels with what we saw in the book of Ephesians. Uh, we are saved together. We are united together in Christ. And he gives different gifts to each one of us. Uh, some have gifts to teach others. But the point is not on the gifts of teaching. It's the point of, of living, the, the growing together, the speaking truth, the using our gifts to serve and love one another. That is a, a building project that God has saved us to be excited about. To recognize that as we gather together with other believers, we have a wonderful opportunity to use the things that God has given us. Uh, for the people, everything they had was a gift from God. I mean, that's true anyway, but it was the Egyptians, wasn't it, that they plundered? God gave the Egyptians plunder to them. And he gives them the joy of then giving that back to him and to this building project. Now, I want to just encourage us and say that this is what I see at Grace. Um, and this is a god thing. I think sometimes we become so used to people serving and loving one another. We just expect that's, that's what we have to do. But no, that is God's spirit at work in you. Um, towards the start of the year, we had a, an elder staff meeting. And one of the things we were doing was just asking about things that had encouraged us over the last year. And I, I think more than half of the group in some way or another, said, you know what has most encouraged me this last year is seeing different people step into roles and using their gifts to love and serve one another. Praise God for that. Um, just a, a kind of anecdote for this last week. I was um, on an email thread uh, between uh, David James and Joe Rigby. And uh, those guys have both stepped into different ways of serving this last year. David into Treasury, Joe into HR. And... Um, I won't tell you the details of what they're talking about, but it's, it's a sort of like compliance area of being a church. It's something in the background, something that we have to do that's important. I don't think either of them are inherently joyful about engaging in that task. And I'm watching them kind of go backwards and forwards, and I'm thinking, praise God for these people who both have the skill and have the heart to serve in this way. This is wonderful. This is God's doing. And, and, and everywhere we look, that's where you see in grace there are people teaching whether it's in Grace Ladies or Teens, Manor Care Home, Hope Explored, Leaning Home Groups. People are opening their homes, welcoming new people, are cooking meals, uh, even hosting home groups. People are setting up, up chairs, uh, running all of our tech, mixing our sound, befriending neighbours, um, teaching internationals English, um, just chatting to people after a Sunday service, playing instruments, Serving refreshments. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And this is not just something that the adults are doing. Uh, teens, can I just say, I am always really encouraged when you guys are serving. I, I didn't actually even think, but you're serving church lunch later. That is wonderful. But when you use your gifts serving in the band, or you, you look after our kids in creche, or when you just engage with younger people in the church... And you see, it's not just the formal things that we're called to do and use our gifts for, but there are all sorts of informal ways that some of us serve, whether it's our prayerfulness for others, whether it's our desire to chat and text and follow up with a brother or sister. 
It's as we together use what God has given to encourage one another to keep going, to keep growing in our knowledge of Christ, to keep serving his plans. And that is what God intends in the building project of his people. And can I just say that if you're feeling like you, you want to be more involved than you are, we, we are always delighted to talk to people about how they can best use their gifts to serve. Um, but can I now speak to someone who maybe kind of hears all this, but actually, if you're honest, you feel overstretched. See, we can look at this picture of joy and kind of un- being restrained to give, and yet, actually, life doesn't feel that way. Um, maybe sometimes it feels like there's a massive weight on our shoulders that actually it's really hard work. And I think in those moments, we could be tempted to say the Christian thing to do is simply to grit our teeth and get on with it. You know, just, just do it. But I think God is showing us here what serving is meant to look like. And the key to this sort of serving is having hearts that are moved by God. And so I think that means it's important that if we, if we feel our hearts becoming somewhat bitter and heavy laden with how we are serving, I think the place we start is simply to pray. We pray. We have others help pray for us. Lord, change my heart. Help my heart want to serve. Please give me the spiritual rest that I need to engage and love my brothers and sisters. And I think we need to do that whilst also recognising that we can be completely apt to simply take on too much. Uh, We can actually get to a point in church life where where we have taken on an unrealistic amount of work. Um, The number of times I talk to people uh, kind of in this situation and it feels like saying no to something is something you just can't do in church life. Well, no, that's not the case. If, if people are willingly moved to serve, we, we can ask people sometimes to do things, and sometimes the answer is going to be no. No, actually, I can't. There's too many other things on my plate. Now, I realize this could be a very dangerous thing, right? You tell the church that you can say no and step back. Next week, all of the kids are in with us in, in the church service. There's no more Grace Kids team. But I genuinely think we need to really believe that actually there can be times where we are asking of ourselves things that God doesn't call us to. Actually, there's lots of great things we're able to do as a church, but the things that matter most kind of start with a heart that wants to serve God. And so sometimes we might need to stop what we're doing because we don't have the resources and time. We have to think more creatively. Um, uh, Please, if you feel weighed down, pray, but please do talk to us. And sometimes it can be helpful to actually change the ways in which we're serving uh, over the course of the time at a church. But can I also then say something specific to uh, women at Grace? Um, I'm really struck by how significant it was for God to underline this point here in the passage, that women were as involved in using their skills and gifts in building his home in the tabernacle. And we really want men and women at Grace to realise that you are indispensable in building of God's home. That God really needs your gifts and skills to be used in his service to build up your brothers and sisters. You see, at a time where, as it were, people's understanding of how men and women relate is so warped and distorted and often so hopeless... It's as they walk into a a place 
God's household, and they see men and women serving together. They see brothers and sisters who love and encourage one another. They are to see something of God's glorious plans from the beginning of creation. Uh, And that's something we want to encourage and we want to pray grows more and more. And I'm encouraged when I look around and I see many women serving in so many different ways. And I just want to encourage you in that. Well, that's the first point. Knowing God moves our heart to serve. Uh, Second and more briefly... It moves our hearts to serve according to God's words. Um, From chapter 36 onwards, we are given a lot of detail. And if you read through these chapters, you might be thinking, hang on a minute, I think we've heard something quite similar in Exodus already. Uh, And that's not a surprise, we have. Uh, Back in chapter 26, we're told about the curtains, the two sets of five curtains with 50 loops that need to be made of finely twisted linen, blue, purple and scarlet yarn, And lo and behold, we're told here, what do the skilled people do? They make the two sets of five curtains with 50 loops, finely twisted linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. The people do exactly what God had told them to do. Now, bear in mind, the Bible could simply have said, you know, two lines. The people did as was instructed. They built the tabernacle to specification. But why does it spend so many verses and chapters telling us what we already know? Well, it's to underline, isn't it? It's to, to be a drum beat that tells us that the details really matter. That the people really did follow the letter of God's commands, every detail. Uh, of course, we know um, from the description of Beziel and Heliab, these workers had to use their God-given wisdom and kind of creativity in some of this work. They, they weren't told exactly what a cherubim looks like. But where God had specified what they needed to do, they cared about those words. They took those words seriously. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this building. I think I have a picture up on screen. Uh, if you've got that, Emmanuel. Does anyone recognize this building? Apple headquarters. Uh, this, this is a building built in America by Apple. At the time, I think it was the most expensive building built in the world. A whopping $5 billion dollars. To make this building. Uh, and if ever you're bored, there's some fascinating videos online that walk you through the, the kind of the design of this building. And it's sort of classic Apple style. Every detail matters. And Johnny Ive, a guy who's sort of involved in designing lots of Apple products, he was like massively involved in building this building. And from the, from the enormous curved glass panels around the sort of spaceship design to the types of trees that were planted uh, in, the middle of, in the middle of the building, um, down to the details of like the lift button, you know, I mean, you could say that this guy is a bit sort of neurotic, but he wanted to design the lift button. It wasn't okay to just have a standard lift button. It needs to be a special Apple lift button. Uh, the underground, there's this huge car park with like integrated lighting in order to make sure you maximized your sort of vision of, uh, of the kind of horizon in front of you. I mean, it, it feels insane. And there's something you can only do if you've got $5 billion to actually spend on a building. But for me, hearing that story, it, it kind of reminded me of the glory of detail. Like, we might think it's a bit over the top, but you walk into that building, you think, gosh, this is, a, this is an Apple-designed building, isn't it? Like, every detail matters. There's a glory there. Well, there was supposed to be a glory in the details of the tabernacle. God cares about the details. When you walk into God's household, you see God's signature there. 
You see, you won't to walk in and think, gosh, how great are these craftsmen that made all of these wonderful things, though they do have wonderful skills and they will have done a good work. But the glory and splendor of the design was to point to the fact that this was God's gift to the people. This is God's gift of a meeting place. As they kind of recognized the design for the priesthood, it was God's gift of a way to be right with him. And this meant that the people needed to obey. Building of this house required obedience. And it was that obedience that led to blessing. Now again, think back to last week in the building of the calf. In a sense, what they were doing when they're making that calf image is, is trying to manipulate God's blessing. They wanted a God that would go before them. They wanted to, if you like, take the God of the clouds that they've seen and witnessed, who's rescued them from Egypt, and they want to package him up in a, a portable object that they could then wheel out and, and take with them wherever they went. But that is not the path of blessing. No, the path of blessing comes as those who obey. So the end of chapter 39, what are we told? Uh, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw they'd done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Our blessing comes through obedience. See, one test of whether we've truly come to know God is whether we've realized that he has actually saved us to obey. That he has given us words that are non-negotiable but are, are good. Um, God's word just sort of inspiration that we're to kind of read and kind of makes us more creative, makes us sort of think better things in life. His word isn't a sort of pick and mix that we can kind of go through and take the bits that we like and get rid of the bits we don't. No, these are, these are words of life. Uh, I think of, I've never been a pilot, but imagining being a pilot flying at the night sky, wanting to land the plane. When you see a runway lit up with lights down either side of them, you don't look at that and think, well, that's nice. I might go with that. I might just have a try on the field. Just in, you know, I'm feeling a bit more field-like than taking those kind of quite restrictive lines that you know, demarcate quite a small space. No, you look at that and you think, great, that's the way of safety. That's where I need to land the plane. See, imagining the people working on this building project, pouring over the notes they've written down from Moses' description of God's plans. They will have made mistakes, won't they? I, I doubt that they made everything perfect the first time. They will have kind of cut bits of wood and got the wrong length. What do they do? Well, they, oh yeah, hang on a minute. No, no, this needs to be a bit longer. Okay, we need to go back and make another one. The point was they have a fixed idea of what the design is they need to build and they are constantly at work in building it until it is ready, until it is finished. See, God has given his people this blueprint for his tabernacle. And he's given us a blueprint for his people. See, for those of us who are members at Grace, there is a daily working out and growing at the sort of craftsmanship, if you like, of increasingly applying God's word, of growing into the things that he calls us to be. We want to please him. We want to honor him. And we want to do that at the very details of our lives. And I guess a question for us this morning is, do we, do we have a vision for this building project that he calls us to creatively and passionately engage with? And listen to what Jesus says in John 15, where he says to his disciples, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I kept my father's commands and remain in his love. 
I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? Love and commands are not opposite things. Now, we want to experience God's love, Jesus' love. It's as we take his commands. So as we start to live them out, that's where we have his joy in us because that is exactly what he does with his father. See, if our trust is in Jesus, we have been given a Holy Spirit, a spirit whose work it is to help us grow in holiness, remolding our hearts. And we should give great thanks for that. And we should set our sights on being more and more obedient to God's words. Well, thirdly and finally, we are saved to serve. Our hearts are moved. We are to do that according to God's words. But that is so that our God might live in us. At chapter 40, the tabernacle is now set up. And verse 34, we see the moment that the people have been waiting for. This is a moment that the glory cloud on top of Mount Sinai moves down over the tabernacle. Verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Uh, That word glory uh, is a a word that sort of literally means weight. This is God's weight, his heaviness, his fullness. It's coming to rest in the very heart of the camp in this wonderfully visible way. Um, So intense is God's presence that Moses, who has had relative access to God, Even he can't come close to him now. You see, the people wanted a God who would go before them. Well, now they have the true and living God, the great I am, in their midst. And notice, he will go before them. He will protect and provide for them. But he's not a God that they can wheel out anymore. He's not a God that they can pull behind on a trolley. Now, what are we told verse 36? Uh, Whenever the cloud lifts from above the tabernacle, then they could set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out. Do you see that? God has given what they gloriously want, and yet he is the one who's in charge here. And that is a good thing. Because this God, the fullness of this God, is what is going to keep them safe in all their travels. Can you imagine how reassuring that would have been to see him day and night in the very heart of the people? And the amazing thing is that God... And his glory now lives in us. His presence is not in a tent. It's in a, in a people. Uh, the beauty of us as a people is not in our outward exp- appearance. It is in the way in which he is transforming us ever increasingly into God's likeness. Uh, listen to these words from 2 Corinthians. Paul says this. We all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's as we, as we contemplate and think about God's glory, the promise here is that the Spirit is making us more glorious. It's making us more like our holy gods. Uh, what is it that we contemplate? Well, he tells us in chapter 4, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made... His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is one of those verses in the Bible that 
I said, I always have to keep reading it again and again. It's a very complicated sentence, isn't it? But what, what is, the, what is the, the bit to highlight? It's that God's glory is seen in the face of Christ. It's seen as we behold Christ and we see what Christ re- reveals to us about who our God is. And see, the thing is, do you realize how that brings us full circle on where we started? How does God's glory and weight increasingly dwell amongst us as his people? It's as we look at Christ and as we see the fullest expression of a God who has deeply loved us. It's as we look at Christ and we see what our wickedness and our rebellion and our sin cost. It cost the Son of God dying in our place. And yet as we look at Christ and we see that that is God's gift of love to you and to me, that we would be right with him. That is the, the truest expression of a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who's able to forgive our wickedness, rebellion and sin. And that is who our God is. And it's as we increasingly encourage one another to keep looking at him, he will move our hearts to joyfully give maybe to the point where we need to be restrained from giving. He will give us great delight in his words that we we know are for our good and we know are trustworthy. Let's take a moment now and reflect on this and then let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we do thank you so much for what you've been teaching us about yourself through this book. Thank you that you are a God who wants to make your home amongst us as a people. Father, please might you help us in that beholding Christ, looking at his glory, looking at that revelation of what you are like, the fullness of your character and love towards us. Might you transform us as we look at him ever increasingly into your likeness. Might we be a people who grows up in maturity, a people who grows and is increasingly godly, that we increasingly reflect to the world around us a holy God that has rescued us, who loves us, who's committed to changing us. And we ask that you might do these things for your glory. Amen.